and welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancato, and myself, George Shaft, where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic and just seeing what happens. It's going to be a more laid back approach to the MI Cynic standard episodes. And it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes, on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. Today, we'll have one of the topics that's probably the most topical, at least concerning, of recent days, and that is, of course, Taiwan and the recent uh, showdown that has been appearing over the seas and over the air. Or if you, uh, or if you go by what both of the factions say, just China, there is no difference. So this has become quite topical as of late uh, due to various reasons. Uh, Russia and China in the Western mind are always seen as kind of allies. It's not quite true, but they do work together a lot. And it was thought that when Russia invaded Ukraine, that China would use the opportunity to then invade Taiwan. This didn't quite pan out. Uh, the Russian invasion got bogged down. Uh, there were complications, and the Chinese military decided to go back to the drawing board and think about it, if indeed they were planning an invasion in the first place. Uh, even with this, though, things have been brewing up and heating up as of late. China, in the uh, a few years ago, started with a doctrine of trying to drain Taiwan's resources by doing a lot of sorties with their airplanes, you know, clipping into Taiwanese airspace so the Taiwan Air Force would fly up to, in, you know, to intercept and escort out with, the rear, with, of course, the full knowledge that China has many, many, many more airplanes, pilots, and fuel than Taiwan can do. So if you're sending in an airplane every hour to clip into airspace, eventually Taiwan's going to either run out of fuel, engine parts, or pilot sanity. Uh, the, they've also been acting more and more belligerent, you know, talking about taking over the, the island, sending in their military to invade, or using whatever means necessary. And it's on this backdrop that, from time of recording last week, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker in the United States, came to visit. She is the highest ranking US official to land in Taiwan since the 1990s, defying China's warnings not to visit. Right. And th this seems to be the event that uh, set a chain in motion in as far as the military drills that we've seen over the last days. Although, as of recording, it seems that about an hour or so ago, China has now gone out to say that they're halting the military drills, but that war preparation continues. So runs the headline on The Guardian. And so we don't know if this is true or what exactly the difference between war preparations and, and military drills might mean. But either way, it seems the message is 
um, you know, the more bombastic elements of uh, fighter jets roaming the Taiwanese skies might stop, but that the threat of invasion to Taiwan most certainly will not dissipate um, at the same time. And I suppose this sets off the wider discussion, as you said, of, of, of why there was such a reaction yeah, within the Chinese uh, high command and within the Chinese uh, Communist Party and the government about the strong reaction against uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi coming to Taiwan. So do you want to talk to us, George, about what the significance of this means, what she might have done while she was there, and why it stokes so much sensibility uh, within the highest uh, echoes of power in, in China? Her visit to Taiwan was frankly typical politician visits. You know, you fly over there, say hello to a couple important people, shake some hands, handful of speeches, yada, yada. But it's significant because technically, or if you ask both sides, there is no difference. Both of them are China. This is because uh, pre, pre the Second World War, China was much less united than it is today. It was riven by civil war. There were warlords across a lot of the, the country. But the overall main authority was the, was the republic. It was the authorities that took over after overthrowing the emperor pre-World War I. What happened, though, was that they fell into civil war with a communist faction led by the infamous Mao Zedong, which eventually won and conquered the, the whole country and drove out the, as they call it, the ROC, the Republic of China, led by Chiang Kai-shek. But as happens so often in, the, in war situations, they didn't, just because you win a war doesn't mean that you've killed everybody on the losing side. And what happened was that Chiang Kai-shek and his loyalists ran to Taiwan, an island that had nominally, nominally been a part of China since the 1640s, and set up their base there and declared that they were going to one day retake the rest of China from this base. Just, just you wait and see. Well, we waited and saw for decades and decades and decades, and it's quite evident that they're not coming back to take over. Now, from my point of view, the rational way to go about it would be to say that at this point, they're just two different countries. But the, author but the authorities in neither side really want to go by this because, in a sense, they are the same country led by the same country's government claiming sovereignty over all of the, the area. And it's quite the concession to then demand and say that you don't control all of your country, even when in practice you don't. And it's a, it's a complicated history because, I mean, China as a, as a country, of course, uh, stretch or rather as a civilization stretches back all the way to um, well to prehistoric times, really the uh, the settlement of the Yellow River, and uh, but in more even in more recent times, it's it's a long, often bloody history. I remember just the last weekend I was visiting one of these markets in, in London where they sell books and such, and I was with my mother, 
she picked up this book, The History of China, The Brief History of China. And the name is uh, the author escapes me, but it's just one of these tiny uh, sort of books of which there are thousands out there on the subject of the Chinese history. But it it, it only went up to 1953 or 1954, I believe. So it's an old book and it was written until then. But even just, you know, more than 60 years ago, you already had quite a lengthy little novel uh, on a brief history up until then of China. And it just goes to highlight the, the point that we're talking about, not only about the country that's home to over a billion people, a billion, um, but one that is marked by different ideologies, revolutions, bloody wars, um, all of that. And as you've correctly noted, Taiwan seems to be um, embroiled and part of and, and embedded into the story of the, this ideological struggle between the communists and, uh, of course, the, the Republican element or the nationalist element um, that was before World War II, but very much touched by World War II. And now we're in this situation in which Taiwan is, is a democracy, living literally at the edge on a little island of China. Um, but I'm very curious to hear, George, before, before you start, just if you could also um, kind of go over quickly, how, how did the Taiwanese people see themselves within that story? And how do they see the, the difference in government and their democracy uh, versus China? Do they think, do they believe, do they fight to be an independent country? And is that the, the source of the problem? It's not a huge surprise, I'm sure, that a billion people all have a vast range of different ideas as to how to run things. And the history of China is, as much as anywhere else, a history of conflict between ideas about how who should be in charge and how they should do it. Taiwan, of course, is essentially you've asked the central crux of Taiwanese democracy at the moment. When Chiang Kai-shek came over with his ROC, troops. He ruled for the rest of his life as a dictator on the island. Uh, infamously, he would have anyone who even said the name of Mao Zedong in his presence killed uh, because he was that angry with the man. Uh, but after his death in the, and in the 1980s, Taiwan became a democracy in a wave of democratization across uh, Eastern Asia, South Korea and the Philippines became democracies at the same, at roughly the same time. And South Korea and, uh, sorry, Taiwan ended up having its first free elections in the 1990s. But that question is really the central, you know, in theory, the dividing line between the main parties. When you vote in Taiwan, the, the choice is often the party that says, try and rejoin China at this point, the, you know, accepting the fact that it's going to be re rejoin China and probably not on our terms, versus become an independent country. Both of the course, as you could probably guess, positions with drawbacks. So, but then what's new? Well, it's and it's always uh, it's always complicated when you have a separatist region in not only domestically, but internationally. I can think, for example, another recent example being Kosovo, another uh, country uh, now uh, that was uh, part of a long history of a complicated region and then finally gaining their independence 
uh, after many decades. But and in that case, the United States supported uh, Kosovo and the doctrine um, that the United States seems to have uh, adopted uh, for quite some time now is a self, uh, self-determination as a principle of international relations. And uh, of course, as a principle that is, is valid even as a cases bellow. So, you know, if you attack the sovereignty of another country like Germany did in World War II, that's reason enough to bring a de- an otherwise peaceful democracy into war. And so this is, this is where things can become challenging because um, one can imagine uh, countries are not so keen on having regions become self-governing uh, countries. And this is where it gets complicated. But for example, in the case of Catalonia or Catalonia in, in Spain, there was not the same amount of support that we could see from Western governments like the US or even the UK, which at the time and still as of speaking, um, Scotland is sort of, uh, you know, now thinking about possibly doing a second independence referendum. And the the first one was narrowly won. The second one, we don't know. So it, it seems to seems to be this perennial problem in international relations where we have separatist regions that for whatever reason, they want to be an independent country. And it is sometimes met with support if it fits into the wider agenda of a, of a governing hegemon and perhaps silence if it is not. Do you, where do you think Taiwan fits into this dichotomy between a purely ideological stance and uh, perhaps a, a United States foreign policy, which for some time now has seen China as, as its principal enemy or rival? The United States supported the Republic of China during the Civil War uh, for essentially practical reasons. The Republic was fighting against a communist party at the same time as the United States was starting to become hostile against the Soviet Union, a Soviet Union that was openly flooding Mao Zedong's army with as many weapons as they could. And so for a long time, the United States was supporting Taiwan, not out of any ideas of you know, self-determination or independence, because frankly, neither side wanted these things. Both sides wanted to crush the other and control the, the whole damn lot. After that, though, it becomes, you know, there's almost an element of a sunk cost fallacy where you think, well, we've been supporting this side because they are our friends and allies back in the day and they supported us and had say the right things vis-a-vis the big cultural world conflict of our time, might as well keep going. It was Richard Nixon that changed the calculus somewhat because he famously did the, you know, opened up China. He, he visited Mao Zedong and instituted a policy of uh, what they called sort of the two China system, where the United States officially, you know, semi-officially recognizes both governments as the government of China and has inter- international relations with the idea of, you know, oh, yeah, oh, you're the, oh, you're the foreign minister for China and you happen to live in Beijing. Oh, you're the foreign minister of, of China, but you happen to live in Taipei type idea. In practice, this has led more and more towards, you know, 
for most countries to concede more towards uh, the People's Republic of China, because, of course, it's the country that controls a billion people and has you know, a vast land area and huge resources and all the rest of it, versus Taiwan, that's a small island in the Pacific Ocean. As to the rest of the whole independence idea, it's, I think it is, as you say, it's a bit more, does it fit within our agenda to support this country or that bid, no, independence bid? The United States, for example, doesn't recognize Somaliland's independence, despite the fact that Somaliland has, in practice, operated as its own country for the past 40 years. It's just that recognizing it would cause instability in East Africa. So it would be, you know, it'd be a bit of a, an issue on that front. Then this is true of all countries. You know, you talked about Kosovo being recognized as if this is a done deal. But it might be easy to forget in Europe that half the world doesn't believe Kosovo is its own country. Russia doesn't recognize uh, Kosovo's independence, nor does China. It's, and of course, neither does Serbia. It's among United Nations members, it's about a 50-50 split whether they recognize that independence. And I even visited that place uh, early this year. It, it looked and operated very much like its own country. That doesn't necessarily mean it's sufficient for recognition on the international stage. With Taiwan, of course, as I've mentioned before, there's that additional complication where for the longest time, neither side wanted to have independence because that wasn't the goal. The goal was to control the whole damn lot. Which, where did you visit earlier this year, George? Uh, Kosovo. Kosovo, but uh, the, the city of Kosovo or anywhere in particular? Uh, it's, not a, it's not a city of Kosovo. It's called Pristina is the oh, name Pristina. of their capital. Right. Uh, I didn't exactly visit anywhere. I was more just driving through it. Right. But I spent a night there and in a hotel outside of Pristina and well, you know, spent and a few hours looking at the countryside as we're driving through it. So you visited one of the newest countries in the world. Um, not to say that, of course, uh, the Kosovan culture hasn't been around for much longer, but uh, as a country, it is yeah. born out of the, the ashes and ruins, of course, of the former Yugoslavia, but it is the, the newest one in, in that region to, to become a country. Well, the culture, the culture question with Kosovo is more complicated because in many ways, the dominant culture of Kosovo is actually very new. If you go back to the sort of the First World War time, uh, Kosovo was majority Serbian. And it was only in later decades that the Albanian population grew and grew to become the majority there. And that's, of course, an additional complication with Taiwan and China, because both of these areas are majority Chinese. It does have implications. I was just going to say, you know, when I think you've, you've mentioned a good point, though, when when you have a, a, the additional factors of uh, a difference in religion or ethnicity, um, then it seems that there's a clearer division of who's who and what's what in the rest of the world's eyes. But when you have a case like Taiwan and China or even North and South Korea, that... Um, these are essentially the same ethnic groups with a shared history and who have at some point 
been one country longer than they have been two independent countries, um, then it certainly gets a bit more complicated. And there, the, the question is, are we looking at a autonomous region or are we looking at um, an independent country or one that wishes to be such? And it seems that the world has not made up its mind with Taiwan, it being primarily the case that at, at the top of China's administerial table is to reintegrate Taiwan. And going against that is almost akin to going against China, a large, powerful, wealthy nation, an industrial nation, and increasingly a militaristically fearsome nation. And, that, and that's where I want to touch on next, George. And this is why most of the world actually has made a decision. And that's that they recognize the PRC, they recognize China as being, in, in a practical sense, the rightful ruler of the whole lot. Uh, only about 20 countries or so maintain full diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And even then, most of these are, frankly, small countries that have some kind of special deal with the Taiwanese government for foreign aid and that sort of thing. The vast, vast majority of countries maintain instead full diplomatic relations with mainland China and de facto say something along the lines of China should be the, the controller of the whole lot. So the United States, because of the history I illustrated earlier, that plays this role of, oh, there's two separate governments here. Both of them are China, but... It's, it's a confusing policy, but, uh, you know, it's part of the burden of being a world hegemon. It's not an easy job. They're not easy shoes to fill. Yeah. And one of, one of the, the job, and of course, the, the British Empire was guilty of this back, in, back during its heyday, is that a lot of map redrawing is part of the equation. And some of that is self-interest. Some of it is simply, as in the case of India, Pakistan, or, or even the Middle East, a bit of ignorance mixed in with a bit of geopolitical gerrymandering of district uh, border lines, and uh, a lot of uh, desperation, as it was during the collapse of the British Empire in World War II, or you know, the Sykes-Picot Agreement comes to mind. Oh, just you know, draw one country there, Syria, Lebanon, and hope they all get along. It was done in a bit of a chaotic way and leading to a lot of the problems the world has today with the region. Um, but it, anyway, the point I wanted to, to highlight is that it is part of the burden of being hegemon. And I think in this case, the United States is trapped between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, there's the principle of self-sovereignty, which the United States is baked into the American way of looking at the world. Certainly the American constitution, which is this peaceful um, mutual agreement between their 50 states. Yeah. And so that's the way they, they look at the world, saying, well, look, if you want to be a, a free, independent country, then you should. But of course, then you've got the, the real problems of the world that you have a China, a communist government, uh, which doesn't have that same view of the world. They think, no, if you are part of the Chinese people, then you will always be part of China, which, by the way, is a communist society. The, I mean, if you want to talk about old maps and map redrawings, China at the moment has got one of the most high-profile situations involving such a map. It's called, the. this is in the South China Sea. The uh, China maintains that 
it has the rightful claims to basically every small speck of rock between all the sort of you know big countries like the Philippines, Vietnam, and Malaysia in the South China Sea, because there's some old map that called the Nine Dash map that says, oh, China controls all of this. And here again, there's an extra complication, though, because the Nine Dash map also has Taiwan be a part of China. So there's a very real concession for China if they recognize Taiwanese independence, because they're putting out this claim that we have the right to control small rocks like the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea for our maritime trade. We're doing so on the basis of this old map here that also says that we control Taiwan. That's, those are very real stakes. There's a lot of resources down under the water there in the South China Sea. And it's no mystery why nations like Vietnam, the Philippines, and Malaysia are so eager to grab their share of it. And also why China's in direct confrontation with those same countries that you've mentioned, part of a wider Chinese policy to control and contest others from the South China Sea and associated regions. And that's a pattern that we were seeing in the the years leading up to, of course, this the newest showdown over Taiwan. But I did want to speak, George, a little bit about the timing, because uh, as our viewers will be aware, this year, of course, at, at the start of this year, we've had... Um, troubles brewing in Ukraine, which has now led to the Ukrainian invasion, of which we have now reached the fifth or the sixth month mark. Um, The war is not going favorably for Russia, I think it's fair to say, but it's also obviously not going favorably for Ukraine. By all accounts, it's looking like this might be a long, drawn-out, protracted uh, conflict, frozen or otherwise, The U.S. in particular is pumping money, supplies and training to Ukraine. Uh, But Russia's military machine, although we have heard constantly that it's about to break down and they're about to give up, has not been the case. And indeed, as we've spoken with Yosef recently, um, Russia hasn't even fully mobilized. So they still have some cards in their hands left to play. Ukraine's got some cards left to play. Anyway, the point I'm trying to highlight is it looks like we're in for a longer while yet, unfortunately, of the calamity of this invasion and war in in Europe. So I want to talk about the timing of the showdown over Taiwan, because with these military drills and with the war preparations that China uh, has now gone out to say that they are they're engaging in, of course, there's always the, the, the risk that this there could be a miscalculation and that a small incident quickly builds up to an armed conflict. But as the United States is committed to the, the, the victory of Ukraine and, of course, the return of Ukrainian lands and peace in, the, in that part of the world, it really begs the question of whether right now the United States, especially considering um, the economic uh, woes that the world is currently experiencing post-pandemic and as far as inflation and many other metrics, um, and energy prices, and food prices, et cetera, et cetera. Whether the United States is able to handle two hot conflicts on opposite sides of the world and far away from itself at the same time. What, what do you think about that, George? 
Taiwan has a massive advantage when it comes to the United States support, one that Ukraine itself doesn't actually enjoy, which is that Taiwan has the direct explicit support of the United States to defend them in the in, in the event of an invasion. Even current President Joe Biden has directly said to the world's cameras that should China invade Taiwan, the United States will respond with military force and to defend the island. That's a policy that is as old as the conflict itself. Uh, it's one of the reasons why back in the 1940s, China, if you will, didn't finish the job because even though Chiang Kai-shek had, had fled to Taiwan, the United States came forth the commitment that they would defend his, you know, his last hideout, if you will. The United States, of course, also has a lot of interest in making sure that Taiwan doesn't fall. It's in the east or west. Geography is confusing on the, on the Pacific Ocean on that front. Uh, seaboard of the Pacific Ocean at a very crucial trade choke point, if you will. If you imagine you're sailing a ship from Japan to Europe, you would sail past Taiwan to then get to the Malacca Straits. It's even in the 1640s, when the first Chinese warlords and uh, you know, settlers were coming to the island, they quickly realized that this is a strategic point with a very good usage in world international trade. Taiwan, of course, also has another advantage that Ukraine does not, which is that it is an island. Mao Zedong didn't invade Taiwan in the 1940s because he knew he wouldn't have had enough ships to sail enough soldiers to get there and take over the whole thing. But that has been changing itself. China has been, over the past 20, 30 years, has invested a lot into its military and has purchased, I fancy, all the... All the the who's who's of great toys for military, like aircraft carriers, cruise missiles, airplanes, and troop transports for the event of taking over the island one day, as well as general defense. Taiwan, of course, doesn't stay still on that. And they, Taiwan still has conscription. So every Taiwanese, there was, yeah, there were talks about ending it back in 2014, but... And what, what is the population of Taiwan? Just to have so but what that might mean, that conscription. Yeah. Uh, the population of Taiwan is, it shouldn't be a surprise, much smaller than the uh, than mainland China. It's about, it's about 23 million or so. Okay. So it's not, not, not a tiny or small population. It does no, have the advantage, of course, of being an island, naturally more of a defensive um, place and, to stage. A, yeah. a, you know, an invasion is, is much more difficult over an island. And a mountainous island at that as well. You look at, a, you look at a topography map of Taiwan and... I would imagine any, any invasion that China might mount over Taiwan would be, um, indubitably, would cost 
many lives, it would be a very bloody affair. Um, simply because, uh, I mean, I mean, that depends also on the resolve of the Taiwanese people to to fight back. That I, I couldn't I couldn't possibly hope to comment on that. But um, regardless, I think it would it would it would be a very bloody and uh, and the cost would be tremendously high. I remember there was an estimate last year that an invasion of Taiwan would cost the Chinese military uh, to invade and to occupy and annex the country would cost China somewhere somewhere around a million soldiers' lives to take the whole island, to clear all of the mountains on the east side of it. And let alone to to keep and hold the island and control it with military police. That's that's what the million figure involved was taking over, you know, which would be an incredibly costly affair because Taiwan has has missiles and airplanes and a navy. It would have to take over cities like Taipei, which... And the United States, right, George? That's that's the the fundamental fact there. That's when things quickly get out of control, because if the United States treats this as a declaration of war on itself... The way that it happened in World War II, Germany declares war on Belgium and then France and England honor a defense treaty. So if the United States was to do that, then are we looking at World War III? That was the final kicker that I was going to add, that that report made the assumption that the United States did not defend Taiwan. If the United States did defend Taiwan and it did become a hot war, there's every chance that could be nuclear war because these are two nuclear powers directly fighting each other scarily close to the mainland of one of the the powers. Mm. And it would be, uh, well, we would have to see how that would unfold. I think both powers are trying to stay clear of that. But what worries me and what we're seeing a lot as well between Russia and, and the United States with the rest of the world is there's a lack of quality communication between nuclear powers. And that's always a frightening state of affairs because one small slip, as I said said earlier, has the capacity to escalate very quickly into a series of unfortunate events. China in particular has been quite belligerent uh, openly. For example, and the Chinese ambassador to Australia recently uh, was quoted as saying that Beijing will use all necessary means for Taiwan unification. That kind of language is well, it's very obvious. Um, now, the question there is, is it rhetoric? Are they trying to threaten? Are they trying to... Well, anything is possible. I would also put, uh, you know, I would also think the West should heed this warning and be be cautious as well. Um, you know, we didn't heed Russian qualms over Ukraine. And look where we are now. I'm not saying it's our fault, of course not. But... There are times when a large power is willing to launch an invasion. I don't think, I think if Ukraine has shown us anything, it's that conquering and invading a neighboring country or or Taiwan, a semi-country, province, autonomous region, is not outside of the realm of possibility. And so it goes back to that old saying, you have to pick your battles carefully. Um, I'm, I'm worried that well, China seems to clearly be putting all its eggs in this particular basket and identifies the unification of Taiwan as its top policy agenda, um, much like Russia did over Ukraine. And so 
are, how far are we willing to go to defend what's right? Yes. But also, um, you know, it's like, how can you compare the destruction of the world to defending one province? And th this is where it, it all gets a bit complicated and where personally, I, I, I don't know how far we should be pulling this Taiwan issue. Perhaps it would be better to push China harder on human rights and something that is factually doable and cooperating together rather than pressing them on an issue that they're very clearly not willing to give up. There is one element of that where it's pretty clear how willing they'd be to fight, and that's Taiwan itself. Taiwan, by everything I've seen, by every metric that you could use to measure these things, is very committed to defending itself and to preserve itself in the event of an invasion. Uh, there is no world where Taiwan itself just gives up without a fight in the event in the event of war. Surprise, democracies don't like being oppressed. Of course, it's what China, I would imagine, wanted most of all is to um, achieve unification through peaceful means or through some kind of influence. And to be fair, you look at the Chinese model, in particular over the last uh, 30, 40 years, and it's done exceedingly well for itself in, in many areas, especially economically. But this has not been enough, as Taiwan has also been doing very even better for itself, you could argue, over the last 30, 40 years. And so they've not been able to win over Taiwan in a peaceful way. And now they find that if they want to go ahead and unify Taiwan at all costs necessary, as the Chinese ambassador um, was quoted as saying, then that might very well mean a military invasion and all that that implies, including a direct showdown between the two most powerful countries in the world. To yeah. finish and round off our conversation, George, how do you estimate the possibility of that happening? War over Taiwan. So China has itself been talking about the prospect of invading Taiwan before 2030. Uh, and there is a, the thing about that is there is a bit of a deadline because as time's been moving on, the average person in Taiwan identifies as Chinese less and less. This makes a lot of sense because if you were alive in Taiwan, say in 1945, you were a part of China and you were a Chinese and you were just as Chinese as someone on the mainland. But it's been a very long time, and someone who was alive in 1940 is in an old folks' home today. The, each successive generation of people in Taiwan identifies less and less with the idea of Chinese and identifies more and more with the idea of being an independent state. Of course, as we've discussed now at length, Taiwan becoming an independent country and being recognized as an independent country has a lot of ramifications, quite negative ramifications to, to China itself. Not least, we've not discussed the prospect that mainland China itself could one day be a democracy, just like, if you will, 
their Chinese kin in Taiwan. So in that sense, the, the prospect of a war is pretty close on the horizon. But then you're making the prediction of what's going to happen in the next 10 years. And hey, as we've been seeing over the past two years, it's very difficult. Anything's possible. Anything's possible. No, I agree with you. But it's a good point you mentioned about the China possibly converting into democracy as outlandish it might, as it might seem. There have been uh, concerns over the Chinese economy lately, in particular uh, its banking sector and the mortgage sector that seem to be on the verge of collapse. That's a topic for another podcast. It's a, it's a bigger one. But just to add the point here that we, what we might see, and you know, this harks back to what we saw in Ukraine, is not to discount the possibility of a good patriotic war just when everything else is going wrong in the countries, when the popularity polls are sinking, when the economy is going down, when the pandemic has struck particularly rough on a country, when you have an autocratic government uh, such as China and or uh, Russia, um, then uh, a, a war as unprepared as you might be for it and uh, as bad as it might turn out for you still seems like quite a, um, quite a good solution or, or temporary patch to silence uh, that dissent and reorient public um, opinion uh, towards uh, this this foreign enemy or this cause. And I think we saw a lot of that in Ukraine. And unfortunately, I think if China's economy is really going through a very difficult moment, it might very well end up being um, the case that the war for Taiwan increases, not decreases. Nations that are on the rise in peaceful times that are gaining ground, if you will, gaining economic share, like the status quo, so don't want to shake it up with something as drastic or dangerous as a war. But when it's not working for you, when things are falling apart, and when your people at home are liking you less and less, and you're getting poorer and poorer and poorer, that's when the calculus of things like war start to look very different. Well, George, unless I've uh, missed anything else that you feel free to add? I mean, there's a minor point where uh, China's been aging a lot. Uh, it's one of, because of the one-child policy, it's got one of the lowest birth rates in the world. So there was an additional worry that by 2030, or certainly by 2040, the share of uh, Chinese citizens who would be of military fighting age might be unacceptably low, which is again another reason why Beijing is pushing for an idea of having war be now. But that's about it. As I said, a a more minor point compared to everything else. No, well, I mean, when we're possibly talking about World War Three, I don't think there are any minor points. So I think everything is should be taken into context. And I think it's a that's why I brought it up. It's a good point also, you know, because when the the Chinese Communist Party is is a is a one man show by Xi Jinping in many ways. It's an autocratic government. And they don't have the spaces for debates and consensus that we do here in the United Kingdom and in many other democracies. And so any one of these points, any one of these statistical anomalies that we might mention, whether it be economy or whether it be um, the age pyramid in society and many other factors, uh, might be more prone to rash decision making. 
and less, uh, let's say, uh, internal debate, uh, as, as you might expect, to, to really suss out whether a policy makes sense or not. I mean, we saw this recently with China and, and their response to the pandemic, which was brutal and harsh. And one wonders, you know, whether it, when Taiwan is brought up as a subject in the highest chambers of, of Chinese decision making, um, whether you have voices such as yours and mine and MY Cynic um, to be poring over these details, to be analyzing different alternatives, to be truly looking for the most rational, humane way forward, or whether it really is down to a few strong characters who are used to having power, who are used to not having their thoughts challenged, uh, and whether it comes down to my signature, your signature over there, done. As I'm sure it happened in, in, in the case for Ukraine. I'm not sure how much um, you know, internal debate really went on. So we end up with, with that situation. So in any case, there's a lot to be worried about in as far as Taiwan. China is, is doing a great job of sending out its, its ambassadors and sending out its, uh, its, its state news agencies and such. And of course, its military to be frightening everyone as this possibility. Um, but like you, I'm worried that it's not simply rhetoric. It falls in line with wider Chinese feeling or foreign policy all the way to the very top. Um, that's something to be frightened about, not just frightened, but something to, to take into context, take into account uh, here in the West and try to find uh, the way forward that um, preserves our values, certainly, yes, but also is mindful of the fact that it's an imperfect world and we have to deal with cases like this. And just bear in mind that if one day you wake up to find a second sun, it might be because of a, a dispute over an island in the Pacific Ocean. It could be. Or you could say if you wake up and there's still only one sun, it might just be because the uh, high officials in the Chinese Communist Party listened to this very podcast of me and George speaking and said, you know what, maybe we shouldn't invade Taiwan. <laughs> You know, peace is the way. So uh, who knows? But until then, stay tuned for the next Friday uh, upload of Cynical Talk. Again, this is your co-host, Thomas Brancalso. And I have been George Shaft. And thank you so much for tuning in. So hope to see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. And that wraps up this week's Cynical Talk episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends. If you haven't, let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and more. You can find us over at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is your co-host, Thomas Boncaso, and I hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of Cynical Talk. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay cynical.